Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Learn about all the podcasts they have to offer over at OsirisPod.com. I got a good one for you today where I present an interview with the author of Fight Like Hell, the untold history of American labor, and that is Kim Kelly. Kim is an independent journalist, author, and organizer. She has been a regular labor columnist for Teen Vogue since 2018, and her writing on labor, class, politics, and culture has appeared in The New Republic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Baffler, The Nation, The Columbia Journalism Review, and Esquire, among many others. Kelly has also worked as a video correspondent for More Perfect Union, The Real News Network, and Means TV, some great outlets there previously. She was the heavy metal editor at Noisy, Vice's Music Vertical, and was an original member of the Vice Union. A third-generation union member, she's a member of the Industrial Workers of the World's Freelance Journalist Union, as well as a member and elected councilperson for the Writers Guild of America East. Kim's profoundly researched book shares the stories of working-class heroes who propelled America's labors relentless push for fairness and equal protection under the law. Those champions of American labor include freed black women organizing for protection in the Reconstruction Era South, Jewish immigrant garment workers braving deadly conditions for a sliver of independence, Asian American field workers rejecting government-sanctioned indentured servitude across the Pacific, incarcerated workers advocating for basic human rights and fair wages, and the queer black labor leaders who helped orchestrate America's civil rights movement. Throughout Fight Like Hell, Kim excavates these untold histories and shows how the rights the American worker has today, including the 40-hour work week, workplace safety standards, restrictions on child labor, protection from harassment and discrimination on the job, were all earned with literal blood, sweat, and tears. Fight Like Hell comes at a time of economic reckoning in America. From Amazon's warehouses to Starbucks cafes, Appalachian coal mines to the sex workers of Portland's stripper strike, interest in organized labor is at a fever pitch not seen since the early 1960s. Inspirational, intersectional, and full of crucial lessons from the past, Fight Like Hell shows what is possible when the working class demands the dignity it has always deserved. In this episode, Kim and I talk about how a heavy metal writer and editor became a tireless advocate for the working class. We touch on a bevy of the stories told in Fight Like Hell, from early 1800s washwomen and garment workers to the prison labor unions of today. We converse about how COVID-19 affected the workers' rights movement. We talk about the Amazon union battles and so much more. I am thrilled for you to learn about Kim's work. Uh, all that's in her book. It's excellent. Go grab a copy. And uh, here is my interview with Kim Kelly. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. podcast cool thanks for doing this i appreciate i love the book really thank you (laughs) really really good it's 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 so much 
to uh, get into. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it here. A lot. Um, She's a big girl. She's a big girl. <laughs> She's, it's, it's, I mean, it spans so much time too. And I will ask you that, how, you know, like the research involved and everything, but I need to know how, um, how a heavy metal editor from Noise <laughs> Um, and amongst other things, and, and he worked at Vice and everything. But how did you, you know, get into um, this whole thing? How did you become a champion for labor unions and become an activist? How did this start? By accident, I guess. Really? <laughs> well, I like a lot of people who come into the world not maybe thinking that much about unions or thinking they belong in unions, and then end up at a workplace where, surprise, there's a union drive, and quickly yeah. realize, oh, wow, there is. I do fit into this this equation. Like I was working at Noisy as the heavy metal editor mm-hmm. in 2015 when I remember going to have coffee with a couple of coworkers and they said, hey, we we're thinking about unionizing. What do you think about that? Yeah. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. How can I get involved? <laughs> because even if I hadn't thought of myself as like the kind of worker who would fit into a union, mm-hmm. like I'm still from a union family. Like I grew up with the union. I know even just sort of viscerally understood that a union was a good thing to have. Like mm-hmm. it's something you could depend on, something that had your back. Yep. I just never had the opportunity to like translate that to my own work experience because I was like a roadie and a heavy metal writer. And like, <laughs> I was not really, I didn't have a, a quote unquote real job until I got hired at Vice. And even that was like, I was the heavy metal editor. It's still <laughs> a very specific job, <laughs> but um I was always interested in this kind of history. I just mm-hmm. never really got the opportunity to connect myself to it and yep. find myself in it until we unionized at Vice. And I got super involved. I was in every every meeting, every committee, every bargaining session. Like I found myself going to way more union meetings than heavy metal shows. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of switched. Oh, wow. Where I was it became your passion. For long, yeah. yeah, for a long time. I was a heavy metal person with a big interest in politics and labor. And then by the end of it, by the time I got laid off in 2019 and had to figure out what to do with myself, I realized like, oh, I think I'm a labor person who's just really into heavy metal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's the pastime. That's the cathartic release. The other thing's the main thing. That's cool. I love that you had a great line about, you know, you mentioned how your family, you know, were involved. Your granddad was, um, he was a mill uh, worker. Millwright. Right? Yeah, it's right. still working. What, is, what does that mean, millwright? I don't even know. He just did know. something in there for like 40 years. Yeah. Um, well, he and, did. He kind of did a little bit of everything. And he was a uh-huh. shop steward and everything. He he brought home a souvenir. He died of. Actually, I just found out from a coal miner friend down south that they call it white lung. But this um, really aggressive form of lung cancer called mesothelioma, uh-huh. which is an occupational disease yeah. that workers get when they breathe in asbestos for a really long time. So that's what got him actually working. That's what got him. Damn. Yeah. So that's, yeah, you had a great line though about the family. I loved it. It's, uh, while it mostly faded into the wallpaper, the union was a constant presence in your home. So it wasn't your home. I was thinking how it wasn't in my home a lot. And I guess growing up in like the 80s, um, you know, Wall Street was king. Strike, you know, labor unions were kind of looked at as the villain in a lot of yeah, stories. Shout out to Reagan. Yeah, I know. Honestly, uh, pardon my French, but I've read, you know, reading that part. I mean, fuck Ronald Reagan. More and more, I learned <laughs> yes. about it. It's just, it just drives <laughs> me crazy. All right, so we got to how you got into, you know, uh, you know, found your passion for working for, you know, worker rights. But how does it happen? You become uh, a regular labor columnist at Teen Vogue. It kind of oh, it, I took them. You did right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I would I probably shouldn't put it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of um. I, I lucked into slash seized an opportunity 
because yeah. I, was, I was when I was at Vice, even before I really got interested in writing about labor stuff, I was still always freelancing because they paid mm -hmm. me like nothing. And I, I was living in New York, so I was always hustling on the side. Mm -hmm. And I had just kind of cold pitched an editor at Teen Vogue because I heard I saw, oh, they're doing more like social justice oriented coverage. That's cool. And I heard that they paid decent. So I was like, yeah, let me just send her an email. And I did it. I did a couple pieces for this editor about like prison industrial complex stuff. Yeah. And then I had the idea. I was thinking like, oh, it would be really cool to write a profile of Mother Jones hmm. because like your readership skews young, it skews towards women. Like that, like that's a badass historical figure that I could write about. And my editor, Ali Maloney, love her. She said like that sounds really cool, but I don't know if our readers know what a union is. Mm -hmm. So why don't you write about that first? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, word. So I wrote about that, and it kind it got a bunch of attention because people were not necessarily expecting Teen Vogue to be running that kind of yeah. content at that time, like twenty. 17 mm -hmm. and um basically it got a bunch of attention it got a good reception and as a freelancer i was like oh cool how can i how can i make this work because i'm still broke and i still want to write more stuff yeah. and I, I pitched them on letting me do a column mm -hmm. and they're like oh yeah you sure why not and then i've been doing it since 2018 so it's been like four years of having this regular labor and working class history column on team vogue wild I think it's, it's just so important, like having that sort of information on that platform, you know, I mean, like I was saying earlier, I wish I knew that labor unions were cool at a younger age and it's just you know, <laughs> the audience skews younger and I don't know, just it's, it's a cool place for it to be and, and get the word out there. Um, trying to make unions sexy again. It is, uh, they are sexy, super sexy. <laughs> um what level, I mean, how long did it take to write this book? There's so much research. I mean, we, we start in the you know, mid-1800s, work all the way through. There's so many different stories within it. How'd you go about it? Chaos. Um, yeah, it was, it was... I started, when I, when I initially approached it, I had all these plans, like, I'm going to fly out. I'm going to go to this archive and go to this library and interview people in this place. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think I signed the contract in like, like February or March 2020 when it had already become very apparent, like, oh, I'm not going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> so what I did was basically spend a ton of time at the library and bought tons and tons and tons of uh, like used books and signed up for every archive online I could get my hands on. I actually relied a lot on friends in the academic world because I don't like college dropout. I don't have access to all the cool like paywalled academic journals and papers and all that stuff mm -hmm. but I know that's where a lot of the good stuff is so I I reached out to you know just various friends in that world they would send me like screenshots and pdfs and hook awesome. me up that way awesome um but yeah since I'm not I don't have an academic background I'm not a trained historian anything like that I just sort of approached it by find like if I, I I don't know I would find people that I thought looked interesting or I'd start with like an event that I knew about already and just kind of dig in and around and see, yeah. okay, well, who only got mentioned a little bit or who, while that was happening, where was this person? And just kind of used a lot of my prior knowledge to guide where I was going. And then I, I followed so many threads and so many trails. And there's so many academics and scholars that have done incredible work in this space already. Their work is just maybe not as easy to pick up in a bookstore or to find online. So I thought, okay, like what I can do is synthesize a lot of this really great research and information that I found into a really accessible, easy book for people to pick up and yeah. pull together all these stories in a way that really, to my knowledge, haven't been combined this way before. Mm -hmm. It's, I guess I see it as sort of a people's history 
in yeah. a way. Yeah. I just wanted to pull in and squeeze in as many people as I could. And the <laughs> editor, I turned in way too much, like 40,000 <laughs> words too much. Oof, oof. <laughs> I mean, there was a challenge there too, because you are focusing on a lot of stories that uh, you know, people who weren't, you know, they weren't telling stories about these women or these marginalized groups. And, you know, they, you know, some of them just have been erased from history. And so, I mean, it feels important in that way to bring them to life and then tell their stories. Um, so there's so many like different, uh, you know, uh, moments and, and crucial, crucial moments and, and people you talk about, but the whole thing kind of starts with um, wash women. And, 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 you know, they had such a huge role in the labor movement. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Cause I mean, you introduced us to uh, the first factory uh, strike ever in the country it was, a, that was in Rhode Island. Um, it. The first trade union was a, was a woman's union too, but these are wash women moments within the late 1800s were really crucial to the whole thing. Yeah. It's always been, I think from my, my research and my experience, at least that has always been true throughout history that the people that have the least power, and I've always had the most to lose, fight the hardest. And I mean, just talking about the example of the washerwomen in the South, like poor Southern Black woman, only a year or two after emancipation, who organized and fought for higher wages and you know saw this movement spread to other parts of the South where they held strikes and held mass meetings. Like there's, there's a really great book um, by this uh, professor named Tara Hunter that's called To Enjoy My Freedom, Southern Black Women's Lives and Labors After the Civil War. That was a really great resource for that section. And really, I was able to find, like, there are so many scholars who have done so much of this really hard work mm -hmm. of, like, digging into the archives and going through microfilm and, find like, finding all this stuff that I was able, I had a, a wealth of resources once I figured out where to look. It just took a little bit of time to find them because like you said, like this history isn't necessarily yeah. what is being given top billing. Yep. Like yep. I spend so much time on um, newspapers.com of all things, <laughs> just going through like local, like just searching various keywords and names, trying to find wow. how like contemporary accounts of what was happening mm -hmm. were laid out and how the, how people were referred to sometimes finding interviews. Like <laughs> this isn't about, um, washerwomen specifically this is a whole different context but kind of just in that realm of finding people's stories mm -hmm. there I, I found so many newspaper articles about a woman named uh, Ida Mae Stull who was one of the first female coal miners well first white women who decided to go work in the mines because there are people that did not have a choice yeah but she launched this whole legal battle to get her job back after the mining commission showed up. We're like, oh, you can't work in a mine. You're a woman. Like that's not allowed. Le it was literally legal. Yeah. And she was like, well, go fuck yourselves. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> there are all these just amazing newspaper articles, like from that period in the 1930s and from like when she was older, she had such killer quotes. Like she was so bad. <laughs> like, I like the sound of Ida Mae. That's awesome. Yeah. She was so tough, but um, yeah, just being able to find people find instances where people were describing what was happening in their own words that was my favorite part because yeah. i couldn't interview her because she's she's not with us anymore and a lot of people in this book are uh, dead yeah. so i had to try really hard to find their actual voices because yeah. that's the important part totally totally i was uh i was thrilled to see chapters dedicated to um the disabled uh yeah. sex workers the incarcerated let me ask you about sex workers because there was a mm amazing to read the stories about what was it marcia johnson i got it right here sylvia rivera miss oh, yeah. major uh griffey gracie those and others but at one point you wrote that 
sex workers um, that have aligned with traditional labor, labor movements have brought an influx of essential knowledge, militancy, and energy into a space that has often been far too conservative for its own or anyone else's good. I was hoping you could talk about you know, some of this energy and know-how that sex workers actually possess and can kind of contribute to the whole labor movement. Sure, because sex workers have always been part of the labor movement because they're workers. Totally. And the labor movement has not, well, <laughs> it's still not great, but it definitely historically has not been very good at accepting that or accepting them, which uh -huh. is a massive problem and a massive oversight because oh. the fact that sex work has been so stigmatized and criminalized mm -hmm. and the fact that so many of those workers are you know, coming from intersecting identities that are oppressed and marginalized, it's they've had to fight so much harder to get even the barest scrap of recognition or legal protection. Mm -hmm. And some of those, you know, even some of the earliest efforts were uh, like in that organizing space where they're even, I, I think, I can't remember the specific date anymore, which is terrible, but there is this whole mass meeting that um, sex workers held that was organized by a couple of madams and they were, they're organizing against, um, this shut this city shut down of the the Barbary Coast, which is what they called this specific red light district in San Francisco back in the day. Can't find the specific date, but y'all can Google it or remember. Yeah, yeah. But um, in the book. They, basically, one of the sentiments from those women that showed up that meeting were like, "Stop trying to save us. We can save ourselves. Just yeah. leave us alone. Stop trying mm -hmm. to arrest us and persecute us." Mm -hmm. And that's still a sentiment that holds today. But really, like the biggest lesson I think that the traditional labor movement can take from these workers is the importance on community and mutual aid and uplifting and protecting the most vulnerable. Like that is, that's what's kept sex workers alive as a community, even in spite of everyone in power trying to grind them down. Like just that kind of community care and real genuine solidarity that, you know, you don't always find within the halls of, of established organized labor, but you can find it in the streets. They were ready to fight too. Um, Marsha Johnson, mm. she wrote, we believe in picking up a gun, starting a revolution if necessary. They weren't joking. Yes. It's right. They had to be. I mean, it's they're fighting for, you know, their right to exist in some cases. Let's talk about um, uh, prisoners for a little bit. Mm. Those, um, those whose boss kind of control every single aspect of their life. And so they have few options to push back, but it was fun to read about the kind of the, uh, the nationwide prisons right movement that started in like the early 70s and, um, you know, persists through today. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happened with that and prisoners fighting for their uh, their rights within these confines? Sure. And there's I think that's so, so much of the conversation around prison labor and incarcerated people that happens in the labor movement doesn't really well, it doesn't really happen as much as it should. And it also kind of fixates on what happens for people when they get out of prison or jail, like the seeing them as workers after they finish that experience. But so many people in this country, like thousands, if not, well, if not millions of people in this country who are inside, they work, they have jobs, they have bosses who also have the power to lock them up or punish or abuse them if they step out of line. And obviously, of course, incarcerated people are part of the labor movement. And in the 70s, this was made much more explicit because incarcerated people started actively organizing unions and in some cases were able to affiliate with outside traditional labor unions and get some stuff done. It got to a point where that organizing had become so widespread and so kind of effective that 
<laughs> the people in charge, prison administrators, et cetera, they realize like, oh, we've got to, we got to do something about this. This can't, we can't allow the prisoners to organize and try to advocate for higher wages and make connections with people outside the walls who have power, because then, you know, that's, that's dangerous for us like that. We can't be having that. And so really a lot of that progress was stymied by this 1977 Supreme Court decision, uh, Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union, that it was kind of a wild case, but what ended up happening was that they ruled that the that incarcerated workers don't have the right to join an organizing union. Like, doesn't matter what the First Amendment says, doesn't matter what kind of rights like every other person in this country is supposed to have. They're like, no, 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 not you. Mm-hmm. And that that really was a huge setback, of course, because there's so much momentum, there's so much organizing happening. And then the law came in and crushed not all of it, but a lot of that momentum. But as workers do, as marginalized people do, they adapted and they found ways to work around it. And now, you know, obviously a lot has happened between the 1970 and 2022, but one of the biggest flashpoints in that ongoing struggle was the creation of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which is involved with the IWW, uh, Industrial Workers of the World. And they have been instrumental in building power within the prisons and organizing with other like prisoners' rights groups, like uh, the Free Alabama Movement and Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. And through these connections and through, you know, worker-to-worker organizing inside the walls, they've managed to to set in motion some really massive nationwide prison strikes. And, you know, they've brought a lot of media and public attention on some of the issues that workers inside face and really brought the, the overarching demand to end prison slavery to the fore. Like, it's obviously, like things have not entirely been fixed. There's a lot of problems, but even just getting people to pay attention yeah. to people who are intentionally tucked away and held out of sight and dehumanized, like that's a big deal. And yeah. that organizing is continuing as we speak. Yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring because I mean, you're right. People kind of just, they get thrown away and people don't think about them. But I love the, um, you know, you dug into the California's uh, incarcerated uh, mm. firefighters. Cause I mean, I know that was when wildflowers are, were going crazy last season. Um, you know, that was something that was brought up a whole bunch, which was important. I want to read Jamie Lowe's book that you, you pointed oh, that's out. That's really good. She's so great? cool. She's great. Yeah. That was, I was so glad I got to put that in there. But because especially like women in, in like the, the prison space, women in, in incarcerated women kind of get left out of a lot of the conversation because yeah. they are a minority too. Mm-hmm. And that is like, I really wanted to focus on them. But I mean, like this section is really population. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty yeah, small. Like but that, I mean, they've been out here doing all kinds of wild yeah. stuff and fighting back too. Mm-hmm. I mean, this chapter means a lot to me because while I was writing it, one of my best friends was incarcerated in Rikers mm-hmm. and he helped organize yeah. the strike. And oh, yeah, cool. I, I put, I think he has the last quote in that, uh, yeah. that section. Yeah. Like he's good now, but just being that close, as close as I could be to someone in that position mm-hmm. while I was thinking about all this was really intense. And yeah. I feel like it was, it hopefully it put a little extra heart into yeah, that chapter. Definitely personalize it too. A trend you see throughout the whole book is how, um, and it's important to note when, when you're talking about these fights is how time and again, the powers that be find ways to pit marginalized people against each mm-hmm. other. And I wonder if you can explain a little bit of how and why those in power um, employ this tactic, because it just kept showing up everywhere. Right. Yeah. It's such a theme. It's such yeah. a divide and conquer kind of tactic. That's the thing, you know, and that's, a, that, I mean, your book really showed how, the, I mean, you, we stick together. That's the power. And of course, they're going to want to pull us apart because that's, that's how you break yeah. that. 
Yeah. That's the thing. They've always they like yeah the bosses, the corporate league, the oligarchs, yeah. the robber barons. They we've always outnumbered them. There's yeah. always been more of us than there are them, and they know that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think people in that position have actively tried so hard over the centuries to keep workers from coming together mm-hmm. by creating artificial divisions or exploiting existing like linguistic or religious or ethnic or racial gender divides, like whatever they can find to keep people apart. Mm-hmm. That's what they've honed in on. And we saw that like much earlier on when, you know, they, they're trying to keep women out of the, well, white women out of the workplace. Mm-hmm. And then when they're trying to paint immigrant workers from different countries as a threat Mm -hmm. to, you know, Native American born men's jobs and then black workers in the post reconstruction era. And then like right now, they still they the the evil ominous they try to convince people that workers from South and Central America and Mexico are coming to to steal jobs or like jobs are being sent overseas to Asian and Asian workers like it's such bullshit. And there's so many examples throughout history of that tactic failing and the workers winning as a result. Yeah. Like, yeah. like thinking of um, the 1946 sugar strike in Hawaii, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite stories because it just shows how powerful it is when workers like reach across those divisions mm-hmm. and fight back. Like this was at a point when white European or American born men owned like basically all of the sugar plantation real estate on the islands and the people that worked in the plantations were immigrants from Asia and Puerto Rico and just all over the place, predominantly different Asian countries, treated like, I keep trying not to swear, <laughs> treated <laughs> about the same space, <laughs> yep. And, you know, they, they, they're organized, they're part of a union, the mm. uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, ILWU, mm. and they got to a point where they were going to strike. And the way that they were successful and the way that they're able to organize amongst themselves was acknowledging and understanding, okay, there's a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures, different culinary traditions. The workers at that time were kept in segregated camps, like Latino uh, or um, Filipino workers were here, Japanese workers here, Korean, Chinese, Puerto Rican, like, and they were all paid differently and treated differently Mm -hmm. because the bosses didn't want them to find common ground. They wanted to pit them against one another. But the way that the organizers and the worker leaders got past all that was like making sure that there are people that were speaking in different native languages at all the meetings and setting up community kitchens. Uh, There's a really cute little anecdote I found about how the Japanese workers actually preferred the way that Filipino workers made rice. So they'd always ask them to do that. Uh Um, Just seeing like building these bonds, a community bond, like, and just finding that common ground and seeing, oh, okay. So we have a lot more in common with one another than we do with the people who are running Definitely. the show and are, you know, cracking whips at us in the plantations. Mm-hmm. So, okay, maybe we should, maybe we should use this. And yeah. they did. I mean, that's what we saw at the Amazon Labor Union Staten Island. Mm-hmm. A vastly diverse, like multiracial, multi-language or multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-gender, multi-generational, might have said that already, group of workers yeah. that just came together and organized themselves by yeah. realizing, okay, we have a lot more in common with one another than we do with Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Um, Fight Like Hell, uh, let's just go with that point. Fight Like Hell is so timely in so many ways. And, and one of the things is that, that Amazon kind of Yeah, right? So, <laughs> I didn't know this was going to happen. Yeah, I know. Really I mean, well, because your book day. starts out with the um, Amazon, um, I think that's in the beginning of the book, the Amazon yeah. Alabama um, uh, strike that was going on. And then, you know, we see what Chris did and, in, in the, um, ALU up here, I was, I want to ask and just kind of get your thoughts on this. 
because one was um, a success at this point. Um, you know, they, they that worked out. But for the RWDSU, things didn't work out. And I was wondering if you could, you know, you had any thoughts on why one was a success and why one um, they're still, you know, fighting. Sure. Yeah, the jury's still out, Ambassador. Yeah. We've got those challenge ballots. We have like 21 unfair labor practices that they filed. Oh, yeah, because yeah, of course, Amazon did not play fair. That's not yeah. in their playbook. But I mean, they, and I, I didn't cover the Staten Island uh, situation as closely as a lot of other really great journalists. Mm -hmm. I was writing the book yeah. and also going back and forth to Bama to, to see the coal miners. Yeah, but yeah, I was, my, yeah I'll bring that up too in a bit. Yeah. But my, so my read on it is that, well, first of all, like New York City and Bessemer, Alabama are pretty different environments. Yeah. And I think that workers in Bessemer do not have quite as many options as mm -hmm. workers in New York City do. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, like if you're a low-wage worker, a marginalized worker, like your options are limited. But mm -hmm. in this specific town, it's like you could work at Amazon or you could work at Walmart for half the money, or you could try and find a job in the coal mines. And there's not a lot else. So a lot of people in that position were much more aware of their vulnerability and much more uh, susceptible to the anti-union propaganda that was being pumped into them because they didn't necessarily have as much outside support, they didn't necessarily have as much experience with unions. And of course, when you don't, when you already have so much to lose, and someone comes in is like, oh, you could lose everything if you if you do this one thing, like that, people are going to listen to that. Yeah. Amazon tried that in Staten Island too, but it was more difficult for them because it was such a worker-led and worker organized effort that they couldn't pull the third party like oh this union's coming in from new york to take all your money which is what they tried in alabama yeah. like it's in alabama like the it's an inhospitable place for labor for organized labor to begin with the laws and the politicians it's tough there like people still organize and they still do incredible work but it's just a little harder i think yeah and staten island like they did it in such a to, to a lot of people i think it seemed like such a novel way like mm -hmm. i don't know if anyone necessarily saw that coming mm -hmm. and god bless them for it like that yeah. was a hell of a sneak attack yep Worse. and i think we can learn a lot from them and i yep. know there was conversation in like inter um what's the word interplay between uh staten island and bessemer i know chris, chris Moss was going to visit he yeah. went down he, he said that they weren't that receptive to an outsider coming in there's a good daily where he gets to lay out exactly everything that um uh you know he went through and it, he, he talked about how he built community just like you know every day there and just like any sort of problems like his someone got sick that he would get them a taxi to the hospital because amazon wasn't doing it. and just like all these mm -hmm. little things the entire time to say i got your back and it all added up to them trusting him after a while but he did mention that when he did go down there they weren't that receptive to outside help which is understandable in some ways you know it's, yeah i talked to some of the guys it seems like they were everyone there was like very excited and very yeah. happy and proud of chris it seems yeah. like maybe earlier on it was like a little uh, yeah it's like maybe is it an interesting meeting for everybody maybe yeah. they weren't immediately best friends but i mm -hmm. think that they've learned they've been able to learn from one another and everyone's very excited okay. about the win yeah. it's yeah because it's yeah strong personalities and strong leaders can sometimes clash with other personalities sure. and people do things a little differently in the south yeah. i'm sure they're inspired by their successes one thing you see over and over in your, in your book and just i mean these successes inspire other people to do things other strikes it continually inspire other strikes and see people dominoes. see these that's it's dominoes exactly i want to ask you though um it's obvious how how uh, important the minor strike 
is to you, you know, in your epilogue, you can see, are there any updates to the um, uh, Warrior Met situation down there? Oh, I mean, I was just down there a couple of weeks ago now oh. almost, uh, to, well, celebrate is sort of a strong word, but I suppose to commemorate the one year anniversary of the strike, mm -hmm. which is now over a year, a year and almost a year and a month, which is longer than most strikes in general. It's the longest strike in Alabama history. Oh. It's longer than the iconic Pittston Steel strike at this mm -hmm. point. It's, it's really, they're making history, but they would much rather just be going to work and making yeah. a little bit more money. Like mm -hmm. folks are, they, I mean, they're resolute, they're holding strong. They've only lost about maybe a little over a hundred people have crossed the line in a year, which is pretty good given the that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. This is, and it's, this is not, again, not an area where there's like a wealth of economic opportunity, uh -huh. yeah. like especially like coal miner wages are pretty good mm -hmm. for that area and going from trying to find a side job at Walmart or like doing some kind of construction work. It's, it's hard for people, but they're not going to give up. I feel like at this point, and like some of the folks have said to me, especially uh, some of the people involved in the women's auxiliary who have really kept the whole thing running or at least kept its stomachs full. They're saying like, you know, we're so dug in by now, like we're good. We can yeah. take care of ourselves. Yeah. Like, Oh, that's cool. Like at this point, it seems like even if they don't win the strike, they feel a lot of folks I talk to feel like, you know, the community we've built, the solidarity we've felt, we we're still going to win, even if the contract isn't what we want it to be. Like we we're coming out of this with a whole new perspective on ourselves and our communities and our work. And that's really valuable because like like it says in the book, like we don't always win, but we always come out of any struggle with something. Yeah, you learn something, learn how to fight it next time. So one last thing that um, is very timely is obviously COVID. Um, you know, a mm. lot of people are looking at workplace and talking about workplace conditions um, everywhere. And I was wondering how you feel, um, you know, the pandemic shaped how people view these discussions and affected kind of the workers' rights movement in whole. Yeah, I think something, on it, I think. Yeah, something I think has happened is that I mean, obviously we're still in the pandemic, but I think in the earliest yeah. days of the pandemic specifically, specifically before we had vaccines, before we knew as much about the virus, like so many people were still had to go to work. They didn't have an option to stay home. They didn't have an option to protect themselves or their families from this deadly virus that we didn't really understand. They just knew they had to go to work because if they didn't, then they would lose what they had and they would put their families at risk. And it was just such this horrible devil's bargain that so many people had to make. And of course, more of them were from marginalized backgrounds, works of color, low-wage workers, people that can't sit at home and work from Zoom. And I think that a lot of people in that position kind of took a greater understanding or a newer understanding of their value of their own lives and the value of their labor mm -hmm. and what their work is worth. And they realized like, you know, we're the ones who keep everything running. We're seeing all of these editorials and all this, all these signs about essential workers. People mm -hmm. are so excited for us, but who, you know, a couple months in when we lose the hazard pay and when people stop wearing masks and I get customers spitting in my face, who's going to be there for me? And uh, the answer is uh, my fellow workers. Yeah. We form a union, even if we just come together at our own store and march on the boss. Like nobody can survive any of this shit on their own unless they're really rich. And honestly, I don't care about those people. You know, the workers, the working class is what kept this country alive, even when the people in power left us for dead. Yeah. And I think just seeing 
just living through that and feeling that and seeing that and seeing this recognition like, oh, my work is really important and I'm not being treated well, not being paid enough. I'm being sent to work in the middle of a deadly plague. Like something's got to give. Like, I think, I think it's time to do something about this. And there was also that like for a minute, we had a little bit of relief from the government. We had a little bit of uh, material support and that gave people a tiny cushion to maybe think about okay, maybe I can quit my job. Maybe I can, you know, invest, like look into something new. Maybe I have a little bit more flexibility for a month or so. Mm-hmm. Like, and that mattered. And then we saw, you know, striketober happen. We saw all these big strikes mm-hmm. that were finally yeah. getting attention. Yeah. The media had finally started paying more attention to workers' stories because it was part of this whole COVID thing. And then maybe they realized like, oh, people want to read about normal people doing interesting things. Yeah. What a concept. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, which I mean, I'm, I hope they do. We wrote a whole book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we do. It's great to just see it in the national discourse finally, and people talking about oh. it. And it's 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 it is it's it's inspiring. And your book's inspiring. It's really it's really really great. I, it exhibits the power we have when we unite. It's you know the power of the picket line, and you know it's how special labor unions are. I, I loved it. I'm glad to talk about it here. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. I'm such a cheerleader. I swear. I'm just like, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna totally. <laughs> totally. No, it's not so good like that. Because if you don't got hope, you don't got nothing. Exactly. And also, you know, that's we were kind of left for dry, uh, you know, by the powers that be. And, and one mm-hmm. thing I kept saying is you look around like, I hope this makes us realize that what we have is each other. You know, they're, they're not here for us. I hope that COVID like helped us realize that. And so we could all work together in a better way. And you see so many examples in your book too. So it's cool. It's, you know, which side are you on? Exactly. exactly. We know. <laughs> awesome. Kim, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really Definitely. fun.
Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.